0: just a few verses today. I, again, I, I planned on preaching about half of, this, half of this chapter all in one Sunday, and I just can't do it. It's too rich. So we're kind of walking along, and today we're going to see a reaction from the crowd that if you are genuinely a Christian, you know what they're feeling. And I guess I should just start by asking you, have you ever felt the feeling, the like, even like small terror of realizing that you were wrong. Now, I'm not talking about like, oh, I thought that was 1994. Is that right? That album came out in 1993. I'm not talking about that kind of wrong. I'm talking about if you ever come face to face with the deficiency of your own person to realize that not only are you not strong enough, but in the ways that you've been using your strength and intellect and, and you know volition, you have been wrong. There's not just some stuff that you've done that's wrong, but there are deficiencies of your character. You are a bad person, right? One of the, one of, it's one of the, the hallmarks of true Christianity is you know, the, this idea that Christians think they're better than other people. Christians are the people who know for sure that we are not enough. We know for sure that there are such deep deficiencies in us that we can't overcome them by by themselves. And I was trying to think, I know I've felt this many times. And by the way, that's a fun afternoon. Like, what story can I tell about when I've really been a dirtbag? Um, and there are, but there are like four or five times in my life where something has happened and just my own depravity has just really hit me. I remember I was a young youth worker. Um, I don't know, 21, 22, something like that, at Hume Lake with a group of junior hires. I think it was the first time. I couldn't have been 22. i uh, maybe 22. I, Tiff and I weren't married. So so it was, you know, I was very young and had been doing youth ministry. I was, I was not one of the cool kids in school. And one of the things that all youth workers struggle with is trying to be one of the cool kids once you get into youth ministry, right? So, um, so I remember being at the salad bar and the girl in front of me, now look, this is like deep, what's your deepest, darkest regret? This is on the list, right? I'm trying to be vulnerable with you. Um, and, uh, and there was a girl in front of me who had made a big deal about being a vegan, and there were some boys behind me who were teasing her. And I was immature and stupid. And so she said something about being sad that cows died for the hamburgers or tacos, that whatever was being served that day. And I, because I'm an idiot, said something along the effects of, well, do you know how many carrots died for your salad? Right? Like something... Right, like most of my regrets in my life have to do with my mouth. You know what I mean? Like that's just smart and smart aleck are very closely aligned. So, um, and the one more than the other most of the time in my life. So, So I said something like that and this probably 13 year old girl turned to me and said, I'm just doing what I think is right and I don't think it's right of you to make fun of me for it. And the Holy Spirit spoke through that 13 year old girl. And I knew that not only did I need to control my mouth, but that there were deficiencies in my character that had to change. That I not only needed to shut up, but I needed to not be the kind of person that that would come out of. That I needed to view youth ministry differently than I had before. That I needed to view not only leading my students, but leading students in general in a different way. That I needed to not tried to win kids to my church by saying funny and cool things, but rather that I needed to so profoundly express the love of Christ to people between the ages of 12 and 18 that they would, whether they made a decision for Christ or not, would at least know what he's like because they had interacted with me. And I went to cabin time that night having nothing to share with the boys because I was just a wreck. Have you ever felt so wrong? that you knew it's not only that you did the wrong thing, but you knew that there were deficiencies in you that had to be changed. And can I go from preaching to meddling early today and say, if you have not had that experience, then today's a great day to get over yourself <laughs> because we are deficient. And, but if you've ever had those moments and if you're committed to Christ, you have. That's when you got on your knees and said, God save me, you knew you needed saving. And if you can remember some of those times, you get a feel, a little bit of an understanding of what's going on in the crowd as they go out to be baptized by John the Baptist. They have heard this call to repentance and they have responded. And today, this, these, just these few verses that we're going to cover today is the conversation that happens between John the Baptist, who is the, the prophet of God, the voice of God to them, and these people who have just discovered how very depraved they were. And we'll find out as we go along. This is a brand new revelation to them. They had good reasons to argue for their own holiness before this. If you would have asked them, hey, are you holy? Are you good? They could have given you reasons why they were. But today they can't. He, so he is John. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come let's think about who the crowd is first why did they come what was the message to which they were responding you know verse 3 above gives us all that's recorded about John's preaching ministry we haven't even heard John speak yet it has it's just been like third hand john was out in the wilderness proclaiming Um, the message of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin which you know off right off the top doesn't sound like that that great of an advertising slogan like if we were going to say hey let's make an evangelistic plan to go win the neighborhood wouldn't it start with like hey there's free candy it does in children's ministry why (laughs) welcome to church have some sugar um Wouldn't it start with something that we would offer? Wouldn't it start with like compassion ministries? Shouldn't it start with with, um, uh, something that makes your life better about the church? And yet John's ministry was not that. Prophetic ministries weren't usually. Prophetic ministries are to the people who already should be what we would call the church, Israel, right? The people of God saying, hey, you know full well you should turn. You should repent. John's message to them, his invitation to them, isn't, isn't, hey, come out and fight. Pick up arms. Let's go get Rome. But rather, why don't you come out and give up? And that is the call to follow Christ, is a call to give up. It's a call to die to yourself. Not for what I will get out of this, unless by what you get out of this, you mean a relationship with Christ. You get to have all that is in Christ. And that's all that's promised. So the promise isn't, hey, we're gathering out by the Jordan to pick up arms and we're going to march back into Jerusalem and take out Herod. That wasn't the invitation. It was rather come and just repent, come and change, change your mind about who you are, live different. It also wasn't come out for a miracle cure for pain, you know? So, and so many times we do see as Jesus gathers a crowd, sometimes it's because he's healing people and casting out demons and people are there to see what's going on for healing but not with John with John it is simply you know full well there's deficiencies in you would you like to come out and change your life and people come so why did they come well certainly some came for the spectacle I imagine I mean I love the fact that we get to hear from Roman soldiers today that Roman soldiers go what do we do if these guys need to repent, can you imagine me? So apparently, um, some were there, you know, not answering the call to repent initially, but um, for sure, most of these people were there because God was doing something, but also because they were making a choice. So why? Why would they repent? Why would, re- why would we repent? You now, I think it has something to do with John 10. And I don't. This is not a fully formed thought, so just let me ramble for a sec. But in John ten, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. If you have a Bible, uh, turn over, and maybe we'll start at verse fourteen. And this is Jesus. So we're you know maybe a maybe a year, maybe two after um, this incident out in you know John's ministry at the Jordan River. But but Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd." I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not in this fold, like Roman soldiers. I must bring them also so they will listen to my voice. So there will only be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I I lay it down of my own accord and have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again this charge I've received from my father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words, and many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane. Why listen to them? And others said, these are not the words who one is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And then it goes on. Again, Jesus saying, but my sheep know me, and I know them. And I wonder if why those people came out to the Jordan River was simply that they heard the voice of their shepherds saying, come and repent. And I wonder if that isn't what draws us to repentance too. It's not the quality of our life that will be upgraded, although live for Jesus and see if your life doesn't get better. But if the call to come out isn't a lack of suffering, Well, if God's so good, why is there suffering in the world? Oh, there's always been suffering in the world. We can talk about that, but that hasn't... Nobody has ever come to Christ because it would eliminate suffering in their life. In fact, martyrdom was part of the deal for much of of, uh, the Christian faith. The reason people are coming out is because they have heard the call of God to repent. It stirred something in them you know, like 25 years of youth ministry or so, and lots of like question and answer days. And a lot of the questions you would expect from high school and junior high students, like, so can I smoke weed or what? Um, There's some of that for sure. But the number one question that I ever got from people, and you know why we don't get this from adults, because kids are honest and adults are less, Um, is how do you hear God's voice? It's been the number one thing that people have wanted to know how do you hear god's voice and over and over my answer has been i don't know but i have and i know it has something to do with relationship with him i know it has something to do with listening for him you know the um the book of proverbs starts with this uh, you know the voice of god personified as this woman wisdom who is who is in a busy street calling out and and you can hear the words of you can hear the voice of wisdom but there's also the din of the marketplace around and so you can hear god's voice but you have to tune into it you have to listen for it the people who are out at the jordan river are not there so their lives will get better they're not there because they're you know going to overthrow caesar or they're going to put an end to sin out in the world rather they have heard the voice of god and have found deficiency in their character and have come so that they might change. And that's how salvation works. And I would just implore you, if you are in a season where you are wrestling with God, to hear the voice of God and simply give up, and come, and repent, and find new life. Jesus said he's the good shepherd. His sheep would know his voice. So in, all the middle, so in the middle of all the craziness of the Roman occupation, God spoke through John and simply said, it's time to repent, it's time to change, it's time to confess, and it's time to prepare as a culture to meet the Messiah. And those who were his followed him. So again, we would do well to apply this to our lives and go, okay, is this, is this different? Yeah, it is a little bit different situation. It is... A, Um, You know, this is before the cross. This is John as the last Old Testament prophet. We're talking about Israel, not the New Testament covenant church. There are some differences, but if we would just back out and say, God is calling his people to repent, we would do well to see where we fit in that story. So again, far from ear-tickling message once the people get there once the people submit to john's baptism i i you know i don't know what i would i would do if uh, i had an opportunity to preach to these people um you know you might you might think john why don't you start with a joke man like say something funny about eating locusts or i don't know like there's got to be some humor around here encourage the people instead what does he say you brood of vipers what is this guy trying to do A brood of vipers is a group of dangerous snakes. So John looks at the people who should be the covenant people of God and says, instead of what I'm looking at here being the covenant people of God, what I see is dangerous snakes. And this is a familiar phrase. And actually in the same story, when Matthew tells this story, John's aim is at the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Matthew it says, when John saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, he looked at them and said, brood of vipers. But luke, Luke's luke got his eye not just on the Pharisees and Sadducees, but on the crowd. And that might tell us something about the relationship between leaders and the crowd. It, it might give us something, might get us thinking about, you know, leadership and, and, a, and a society that as the leaders go, so, so do the, the people in the society. It might have something for that but i think it 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 for sure has to get us thinking that man the ideal for israel was so great do you remember what israel was supposed to be like a thousand years ago like like even longer than that, as, as God calls Abraham, as God wrestles with Jacob, as God calls his people to Mount Sinai and gives them the law, as God continues to pursue his people and train them and, and then send them to exile and bring them back. Do you remember the ideal of, of what Israel was supposed to be? Israel was supposed to be the demonstration of what life looked like under God. A place of justice. A place of love where the poor would be cared for and there wouldn't be idolatry. Where God would provide and they would trust that God was the provider. Not any other gods and also not their own ingenuity, but that God was the provider. And not only that, but they were supposed to be this light to the Gentiles, that all the Gentile nations would see what it was like when a people were fully submitted to God and and they would get to watch God care for his people and watch the people respond in love. It would be a community, a society of fairness where God alone was worshipped. But instead, as John sits out there at the Jordan River in the first century, he looks around and goes, instead of that ideal of Israel, I'm looking at a pile of snakes. Yeah. Where the poor get ripped off when they're trying to give sacrifices at the temple. Right? That, That makes Jesus flip some tables where you could get arrested for saying that you worship God and God alone, where just a few years from now the argument against Jesus is going to say he doesn't acknowledge Caesar as God. Far from being a light to the world, Israel had in part closed itself off from the world, wanting to be an ivory tower of theology, and in another way it had been corrupted by the world to the point where Selfishness and greed and power and pride were problems in Israel just like everywhere else. The works of the flesh were evident. You know, I'm no like national prophet, but I think we could probably look at the church in every age and go, man, there's the propensity for this exact thing. That we in one way would close ourselves... At least, let's say, this is something we always need to be watching out for. In one way, we've closed ourselves off from the world where we want to be like the holy salt shaker, and we're like, it's so, I'm so glad that we know everything and nobody else does. Isn't it great to be us? And on the other hand, news story after news story about corruption, about, um, about sexual immorality, about financial impurity, about all kinds of stuff that happen in the church just like they happen everywhere else. What was supposed to be a light to the world had become a pile of dangerous snakes. Now, John's a prophet. So he just, he just says what's true. And it's pretty easy for us to pile on the church and go, yeah, we're lame too. I, I like a lot of us. <laughs> I've known a lot of really wonderful, sweethearted Christians who didn't fit this description at all. But it would be unwise for us to say this isn't in us, that we don't have to look out for it, that we too desire to be a light to the nations instead of a pile of snakes. Because the ideal for the church is pretty lofty too a place, a community of love. How many times are we told to love one another? A place of sincere prayer. A place of worship. Where love and joy and peace and patience and self-control grow in us. A place of faith and of hope instead of fear and worry about the world. Where we endure struggle and even persecution with with love and grace. Grace where we don't act like the judge of the world pronouncing judgment and condemnation everywhere we go, but rather we exist to seek and save the lost. A place where Jesus is our only king, we have no king except for Christ, where he is our only God, and where people can see what it's like to live under the kingdom of God. And that's a lofty ideal. So then John says, I, I, see, I see dangerous snakes instead of a light to the world. And, and, and then he says, who told you to escape the wrath to come? That is an interesting thing because there was not one person in that crowd that did not know that there was a wrath to come. In fact, probably nobody in that crowd that wasn't excited that there was a wrath to come. Because when you are a self-righteous member of the the community of God, you can't wait for the wrath of God to come and fall on everybody else. But these people are brand new in their understanding that, that there was deficiencies in their character, that they had to repent. So John continues, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's the big idea. Don't rely on your heritage. Don't rely on your culture. And it must have been super tempting to rely on being a Jew, especially under Roman occupation. Anytime we feel picked on, it's really easy—or I don't know if easy—but it like is one of the, the um, quickest reactions is to like develop a cultural in-group and decide everybody else is bad, right? So as Rome comes in, the easiest thing is for us to go, "No, we're good because we're Jews, because we have the Old Testament and you don't." Because we make sacrifices to Yahweh and you make sacrifices to all your gods and, and we're better. So like I say, before their time of repentance, every one of these people could have said why they didn't need to repent. Before this realization, this hearing the call to repentance, all of them could have said, why are you God's special people? And they could have said, oh, well, God saved our people out of Egypt and we have the sacrificial system, and we have a priesthood, and we keep the Sabbath, not like these Gentile dogs, and we keep the uh, dietary commands, and I can tell you why I'm better than the rest of the world. But there comes a point where legalism doesn't work anymore, like self-righteousness falls apart, and you go, oh no, woe is me. Of course, it wasn't bad to be a Jew. Paul talks about the benefit that it was to to be the people to whom the promise of the Messiah was given, but the gift of receiving the heritage of the Old Testament was not something that was supposed to just be their identity. It was supposed to be a job description. I talk about this a lot, but being the church, being the family of God is not just our identity. It is our job description. It is something we be, and then it is something we do. And if you are not doing it, you are not being it. Are you with me? We are not simply... Christians because we identify with Jesus. We are certainly not simply Christians because we identify with a church. All right, look, apple trees don't spend a bunch of time yelling, I'm an apple tree. They just drop apples. Then everybody goes, that's an apple tree. And just so we're super clear, like the fruit that Christians should be dropping is not hard to find in, in scripture. We could all we could brainstorm a list right now. It's it's care for the poor, it's justice, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's practical help for the least of these. It's holy it's holy living where we are more like Jesus all the time. It's selfless love for each other. And also just to be clear. The fruit that identifies, the, uh, that identifies people as not in the kingdom of God is pretty clear in the scriptures too. It's judgmental attitudes, it's unloving lives, it's lack of forgiveness, it's rebellious sin, it's unholy living, it's factions, it's anger, it's self-righteousness, it's immorality. These are just the way of the world. And it's easy in scripture to say, I can tell what fruit is falling off of Christians and what fruit is not. And John is speaking in such a particular time in history. You know, the the Messiah is about to be on the scene and the the curtain of the Holy of Holies will be torn in three years and the temple will be destroyed in 40 years. So very much he is saying, look, the time when you can rely on just being a Jew is going to be over very soon. The temple is going to be gone. The sacrificial system is going to fall apart. Now's the time to stop relying on just being a churchgoer and instead start dropping some fruit. And you know, I don't know if Jesus is coming back this year or in a thousand years. I really don't. And if you know, that's awesome. Way to go. But I know that we should take a similar Warning and encouragement. Because there is an eschatological axe laid at the roots of all mankind. The day is coming when saying things like, Well, but my family has always been apple trees. Or, I spend a lot of time in the orchard, I even take care of the saplings. Or, I fully agree that apple trees have the right idea. Or especially, I only like other apple trees. time's coming where that's going to be pretty obvious that that's not enough. And what's going to actually count is whether or not we have been on mission in relationship to who we know ourselves to be. So why don't we all do all we can to live up to that high and lofty ideal of the church to give up on bitterness and be people of forgiveness to be people of love to be people of justice and peace and unity and care for the poor and reaching out to the full measure of christ so this idea keeps going as john keeps talking and the crowds ask him what then shall we do can i tell you that is the greatest question To find yourself deficient, to fall on your face in repentance and to turn your gaze skyward and go, Jesus, what do I do, is a phenomenal response. This is real repentance. What is it that I, it acknowledges that that there is something to do. We don't just leave John the Baptist's message about wrath to come and go, that was a good message. I had a few problems with the way he used some of the language, but it's it's a good message. No, rather we say, oh no, what do I do? And I can't stress this enough or frequently enough, but the life that Israel was called to and the life of faith to which we are called was and is a life of action and behavior as well as being a life of thought and belief. It starts in our inner man and not... Are works that save us but the the salvation that wells up that living water that wells up from inside us necessarily produces action in our lives so we come to jesus but it's a path it's a way it's something we follow so they were coming to be baptized but there was a recognition that baptism was the beginning of something not the totality of it does that make sense that this was not something that they could say, well, now I've been baptized, so that's solved. But rather, this was the starting line where they would live a different kind of life. So our faith is something to which we are called. God starts the conversation. It is something we receive. We don't earn forgiveness. It's something we are. It changes our identity. It's something we become. We can say once and for all, I am a Christian. I don't have to earn my salvation with good works day after day, but it is something that we do. It is important to remember that the first thing the Christians were ever called was people of the way. It is a path. It is a way to live. Several times a year, I like to quote Emil Bruner. Do you know the quote? I say it all the time. The church exists by mission, As fire exists by burning. If it's not not burning, it's not a fire. And if you're not on mission, you're not the church. So we come to Jesus. We accept Him. We're saved by Him. We receive Him. But also, we must then recognize that without Him, we are dangerous. Did you get that? You're a bunch of snakes and there's wrath to come. Without without living fully for him, we are dangerous and we are in danger. And we cry out, what then shall we do? So we have to get over the pride that leads, leads to earning. I can earn my salvation. We have to get over the pride of deserving. I, because I've been at this church forever, I deserve salvation. We also must get over the pride that leads to indifference and apathy. So it continues. And he answered them. And look how practical this is. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also. So watch, we've got people we've got people who are like we might say in good standing in the jewish community then we've got tax collectors who are like jews who are traitors for rome and then we've got romans luke really wants to go out of his way to say no matter where you came from this is for you jesus is the messiah of the whole world so soldiers also asked him and and we what shall we do and he said to them do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages Three things about those that very practical advice, and I'll let you go. First of all, this instruction was specific to the, sit, to the station of the individual. To everybody, he says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. By the way, I, I, did, I didn't count every shirt, but I've got more than 35 shirts. And I never have anything to wear. To be fair, there's like, three or four sizes of grant so we got like you know eight shirts of any one size of grant they're all still in there though i kind of rotate through them as the years go by this is a high call to say you'll only end up with one tunic at the end of this so to everybody share and don't hoard There's something really profound about just anticipating that God will provide so you can give stuff away. To say, should we be wise? Oh sure, the Bible has tons of wisdom about saving for retirement, tons of wisdom about providing for not only your family, not only your children, but also your grandchildren. The Bible would encourage good, solid wisdom, but the Bible would encourage you to live a life in a way that you'd anticipate God will provide. To the tax collectors, he says, don't take advantage of your power over people. I imagine most of us have power over people in one way or another. He says, don't use that for your advantage. To the soldiers, he says, don't use violence or threat of false accusation to extort people. You know, we would all do really well to spend some time just in our quiet time this week saying, what am I? And if my station in life was, resi- was, was represented there, what would Jesus have said? "Hey, to the pastors, and don't live your life for the glory of men. Don't live your life for, for likes or memberships or what would he say to your station in life? It's pretty easy for us. In fact, I think I am an expert in how all of you should live your life, right? That's, That's the easiest part. But when you stop being a soldier who says, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you actually are aware of the deficiencies in your own character, and that changes to, what do I do? Well, that's where repentance is actually started. From the elementary school, we've all known the best way to get a laugh at somebody else's expense, right? We've all known the best way to use other people for, um, for our own glory. That's, that comes very naturally to all of us. To find somebody that thinks differently than you and to tell them they're wrong, that is so easy. We have whole social media websites dedicated to it. Just find somebody you disagree with and Have at it. Mm. That feeling, I told them. Mm. So good. (laughs) But when you stop with woe is you and woe is you and woe is you and you get to woe is me, then salvation is right there. Then the flood of grace and forgiveness that's available to you changes who you are fundamentally as a person. So I should probably do my thinking about what justice and love and forgiveness looks like coming from a 48-year-old pastor with four kids. That's what I should concentrate on. And you and the Holy Spirit should think about what that looks like coming out of you. The second thing I notice in this passage, this, this last piece we'll connect with today is, is a continuing example of the reversal in luke this this might very well be paul's you know source material as he instructs us to drop the hierarchy of the rest of the world no more jews or greeks or slave or free and to think about others more important than we are ourselves this is exactly what um, john is saying tax collectors treat the people under you like they're people soldiers treat people who aren't romans like they are And everyone, if you were cold, you'd want a tunic, so give up yours. Instead of considering how we can use our positions, tax collectors, soldiers, whatever it is, for our benefit, we live our lives to see how we can live out the truth that the scriptures are very clear about, that every human has equal value and deserves love and care and forgiveness and tunics. Lastly, this is really what John is encouraging these people to do is what maybe philosophers would say moving past is into ought. You know the is ought problem, right? Is the, the, to, to say what is is to say what is the culture I'm in, what's appropriate right now. You know, being a youth pastor forever, um, uh, have, what should we do about marijuana was like radically changed several years ago. Because it became legal, right? And so every youth pastor I ever talked to when I was a kid was like, no, you can't do it because it's against the law. Well, then it no longer was against the law. You're going, oh, well, now you gotta wait till you're, I don't know, what do you got? I'm, my lifetime consumption's still zero, so I'm a little iffy on it. Um, but but uh, you gotta be 21 now, something like that? So we go, okay, well, then at 22, is it now more? Do you see that as an is kind of issue? Well, given the culture I'm in, given the the way that, hey, I might have been cruel to that person, but you know what? They put me through so much, I can't forgive them. That's an is kind of answer. That, That is in line with the cultural standard. But John wants to move us past is into ought, considering the truth of the universe, what ought I actually to do? And that doesn't change with the laws, and it doesn't change with the culture, It is simply, how can I reflect the love of God every day, everywhere I am? And notice how costly this instruction is. Again, you only end up with one tunic at the end of this and enough food for today, and that's it. So ours is a knowing faith. It's things we know. It's a relational faith. It's a relationship with God. But it is also a behavioral faith. It is stuff that we actually do. So, do you know what it's like to feel wrong? Not just that you've done things, but that there's deficiency in you. If, if you stopped trying to defend yourself, if you stopped trying to prove that you belong to Jesus, would you say, "Ah, I need, I need to stop defending myself. I need to start dropping some fruit. We're going to sing one more song, and I would encourage you to reflect. I would encourage you to think about what John's words would be to you. And if you haven't in a while, I would encourage you to simply bow your head and say, Jesus, what should I be doing? And if you are far away from God and have been pretending that you're near, if you don't have a relationship where you have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, and rather have just been participating in some sort of legal, religious, whatever that is, today would be a great day to come to Christ. Today would be a great day to give up self and simply give yourself to Christ.